<laughs> Gosh. This evening. <laughs> Don't look at me that way, hon. <laughs> if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Greg is going to pass them out. Daniel chapter 1. You might also want to turn, let me see where I have that, to Isaiah chapter 1 and Jeremiah chapter 5 and maybe put a a bookmark in there as well so that you can hit there because I'm going to hit a couple of those places as we go through chapter 1 of Daniel. Isaiah 1 and Jeremiah chapter 5 and Daniel chapter 1. Just a reminder, we have our baptism Sunday evening from 6.30 to 8.30 um, it's always an exciting time, and I just can't wait. And pray for good weather. And and uh, but it's, uh, if you've not been baptized, it's something that our Lord commands you to be baptized, not for salvation, but because of salvation. And showing that as you're going under the water, you're dying to your old life, your old ways, rising up, walking in that newness of life. And so, if you want to be baptized, uh, let me know tonight after service or Sunday, uh, you know, before. And, and so I kind of have an idea of how many folks are going to come out for that. And, and so it's a real exciting time. Daniel chapter 1, title of our, our series, I think, is going to be Dare to Be a Daniel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word, knowing, Lord God, that every time we open your word, you have something to say to each one of us. Uh, all the time, Lord. And so, Lord, as we uh, start to dig in this book, Lord, of uh, uh, Daniel, Lord, that we pray that you'd give us open ears to receive all that you want to say to us. Lord, give us not only information, but application in our lives that we might draw closer to you, Lord, that we might recognize, Lord, the days in which we live in, Lord, you have all preordained them before the foundation of the, this world. Lord, you know what's going to happen. And, Lord, it's exciting to see Lord, that you've laid it out in your word. And so, Father, as we begin this book, we just ask your blessing upon it. Lord, of our time together, and pray that you're glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I thought it good to start the book of Daniel, seeing how we really just finished up the book of Jeremiah. We had the Song of Solomon in between there. Uh, but uh, finish up the, the book of, of Jeremiah, kind of it lines up chronologically with where we're at. Daniel really is the Old Testament, uh, what Daniel is the Old Testament is the, what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. In fact, we will see that we really cannot understand the one without the other. Now, when it comes to the book of Daniel, there's no other book of the Bible that I've seen that is, has attracted such criticism as a book of Daniel. Doubting scholars have attacked it for years, claiming that it could not possibly be what it claims to be, a prophetic and historical writing by Daniel during his lifetime about events spanning from 605 B.C. to 530 B.C. Now, why did they have such doubt? Because all the prophecies written in the book of Daniel has uh, been accurately fulfilled. And so they say, well, that could never have been happened, you know, happened before the event. Someone had to write this after all these things happened. I mean, now there's logic for you. Uh, you know, the, the book must not be true because all the prophecies came true. <laughs> Done. In fact, some of the critics have even suggested that Daniel never even existed. That his book is fraudulent, that it was written by someone else long after the events that predict had happened. And so they, say, they say the date of the writing of the book of Daniel is 165 B.C. That Daniel's critics should not be more wrong. The Septuagint was the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was written around 285 B.C. 
and the book of Daniel is a part of the Septuagint. Obviously, Daniel was written prior to that late date of the critics. The Dead Sea Scrolls also confirmed the biblical date of Daniel. But the greatest proof of the authorship of Daniel comes from Jesus himself when he said in Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So if some scholar thinks that he knows more than Jesus, well, then he's got a bigger problem on his hands than the authorship of Daniel. Now, Daniel has 12 chapters, and it can be divided into two categories. The first six chapters really deal with the personal history of Daniel, and the final six chapters deal with the prophetic ministry of Daniel. Daniel really stands out as one of the the greatest men in Jewish history. He was a teenager, maybe 14, 15 years old in 605 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and began his conquest of Judah. Daniel was still alive in 539 B.C. when the kingdom was taken over by Cyrus. In fact, he lived through four different rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and Cyrus, and three different kingdoms, Babylon, the Medes, and the Persians. He held several different positions, but was promoted greatly because of his character and wisdom, and really because of the blessing of God upon his life. For many years, Daniel was God's faithful witness in a wicked and an idolatrous kingdom. I mean, he was, he was a statesman, he was a, a governmental bureaucrat, a professional politician, he served in the courts of Babylon and, and Persia, yet he remained loyal to God. Rather than letting the world whittle away at his convictions, Daniel stayed strong, he refused to wear down, he refused to wimp out. This man was a part of the, the influential minority that for over 80 years was a witness for God. And I think we too are living in the time of, of really increasingly in a pagan world. And it's trying to turn our convictions into compromise. That's why I think it's a great time for us to be digging in the book of Daniel right now. And really to, to dare to be a Daniel. He shines as a great example to all of us. Now, as I said, keep your place in Daniel chapter 1. Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 1 first and then we'll hit Jeremiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 1. Kind of look at a, a prequel. What has gone on right before Daniel is taken captive? See, God had been warning the Jews to turn from their idolatry. He'd been warning them to, to stop the hypocrisy. Otherwise, judgment was going to come. You know, God always gives us a warning before His wrath will be poured out. God always sends a prophet to, to say, hey, stop sinning. And this is what we see in in chapter 1 of Isaiah. Look at verse 2. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Listen, we serve a God who's gracious. We serve a God who's full of compassion. And I, for one, am thankful that when I sin, that I'm not instantaneously judged. That's it, Tom, you've blown it, you're judged. See, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. As He draws me away from that sin, and He brings me to that point of confession, that's the grace of God. That's the goodness of God, and that He's willing to work with me. And you, Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you not despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? 
See, God gives us chance after chance after chance to repent and turn from our sin and, and to reconcile with, with, with tears of remorse so that finally we come to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I recognize I sinned against you. Well, here in our, in our text in Isaiah, God is speaking to the nation of Israel and He's saying with all of His love and all of His compassion and all of His, his goodness and all of His grace and for His people to turn back to Him. Turn back to me. And he's saying, to paraphrase verses 1, or 2 and 3 in Isaiah, he says, I continue to be graceful to you. I continue to, to show you, you know, to goodness to you. And you continue to walk away. He says, even the animals, the ox and the donkey, you know, the ox will you know, wag its tail and, and, and you know, snort it from its snoot, whatever oxes do. But they know who, who the master is. You know, the, the donkey always returns to the master's stall. But you, Israel, you seem to walk away when I'm asking you to obey. What's the problem? I have blessed you. I have nourished you. Why is it that you won't return? Why is it that you won't repent? Because if you continue on that path, wandering away, shouldn't there come a point when judgment has to come down? Folks, look at what God says next. Look at verses 18 through 20 of Isaiah chapter 1. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you take your notes, you might want to underline that word reason there. See, God is willing to dialogue with men when in rebellion and refusing to repent. The word for reason actually means to argue, adjust, correct, convict. We see that from that verse, God is willing to work within our lives. He's not bringing down his heavy hammer of judgment. He's trying to, to, to work with our lives. You see, before punishment, he will plead, come on, turn around. One more chance, because if you keep going down the path of destruction, you're going to hurt yourself. It's strange that God has to put it this way, but that's his compassion. That's his concern. He says in the second half of that verse in Isaiah, if you are willing and if you are obedient, you know that I'm going to bless you and you will eat of the good of the land. But if you continue to refuse and rebel, then you will be devoured and destroyed. He's saying right now, I'm giving you the opportunity to obey. What's it going to be? Now, the strange thing is that there even is a debate over all of that. I mean, it's kind of like, let's make a deal, the game show. You know, you make a choice. You want door number one or door number two. Door number one, you know, devoured and destroyed by the sword. Door number two, eat from the good of the land, be blessed. Which door do you want? I think I'll have door number one. I mean, that's what the, you know, the, the pick devoured by the sword, you know. No, I'm going to pick, hey, I want, I want the, to be blessed and eat of the good of the land. So why is there debate? Why is there even a question? What would make them pick door number one, devoured by the sword? Here's why. Because Israel at this point, their sins have so calloused their spirit that they have a hard time deciding what to do. They so enjoy their sin, they don't want to give it up regardless of the consequences. You know, we see that in our time and our lives as well. Should I continue in an ungodly relationship, even though I know it's going to cost me my marriage or my family? Should I continue to cheat and compromise at work, work workplace, even though I may be fired or worshipped, thrown into prison? Or less dramatic, God says, hey, get your finances in order and I'll bless you. If not, you're going to continue to struggle. Spend time with me in the morning and you'll be blessed. But if not, you're going to struggle. 
stay off social media. It's causing you to get your eyes off of me and I can't bless you. Here's my point. God, if God has given you a word of warning before his discipline, wouldn't you expect that if you fail to respond that sooner or later, he's going to bring that discipline in your life? He's going to wake us up. See, God gives us warning after warning, but if we refuse to listen, what do we expect? Turn with me now to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 29. This is where God declares in verse 29, Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I mean, it's as if a parent is saying to to his child, his son, saying, listen, I've warned you. You refuse to listen to me. We've gone back and forth and back and forth with this way too long. We're not going to do this any longer. It's time for discipline. Here it comes. I mean, it's an amazing here next. I mean, look at verse 30 in Jeremiah 5. As God sees an astonishing and a horrible thing, he says so in verse 30. He says, Jeremiah 5, verse 30, an astonishing and a horrible thing has been committed in the land the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? Wow. They'd love to have it so. The, the priests, the, the, the prophets are, 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 are prophesying falsely. The priests are ruling by their own power. They're not listening to God. But they got this whole hypocrisy going on and, and, and God says, you know, enough is enough. Judgment is going to come. And judgment did come. Many lives were lost. Many lives were taken captive into Babylon. And, and that now brings us back to Daniel chapter 1. A little bit of an introduction there, but we needed to get there in order to, to see what was going on here. Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1 now, we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, into the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure's house of his God. Really, the book of Daniel starts off with the tale of three kings. First, we have the wicked king Jehoiakim. He was a a wicked man whose reign marked the, the peak of idolatry in Jerusalem. Second king was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Remember, Genesis 11 tells us that the Tower of Babel was a birthplace of idolatry. It's as if God is saying to the people in Judah, if you want to worship idols, then man, I'm going to give you the fullness of, of idolatry. Here it is. It's a nation steeped in idolatry. You know, I said this is a tale of three kings. The third king mentioned in these first two verses is the Lord. See, it, it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar did not act alone When he besieged Jerusalem and looted the temple. Verse 2 reads, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. God had, again, warned Judah to turn from idolatry or judgment would come. And here God fulfills his promise. Folks, I have to say, the warnings have come to the United States over and over again. 50 years ago, some 50, 60 years ago, please don't take the Bible out of our schools. You know, it's not a good thing. You're moving away from God. They take it out. Please don't take prayer out of schools. You're breaking off communication with God. They take it out. Please don't make laws to allow the murder of unborn children. They, they make laws to allow that to happen. Stop calling alcoholism a disease or, or homosexuality an ethnic choice. Please turn back to me, God says. So should we then be surprised if God decides to judge us as a nation? 
that God gave Israel warning after warning from prophet after prophet saying, you're moving away, you're slipping away, you've got to wake up and come back to me. And, and all they were saying, oh, we're fine, we're fine. We're Israel, God's chosen people. You know, United States, oh, you know, we're, we're Christian, we're founded on Christian principles, we're, we're, we're the United States. Hey, you know what, God sees what we really are. And God here finally says, it's not going to happen anymore. I'm going to use this evil, wicked king to come and take you away, my people. And God employs the forces of evil to bring about judgment. Now, don't miss the point. This is really the theme of, of, of the book of Daniel. God is sovereign in the affairs of men. He orchestrates the rise and the fall of nations. World politics aren't shaped in Washington, D.C. or Moscow or Jerusalem or Europe. World politics are shaped in heaven through the counsel of God. Now what is interesting to me here is that in Daniel 1 we see the, the parents' problem actually become the consequences for their kids. The reason I bring that up is as we look at the book of Daniel, we looked at a warning from Isaiah, a warning from Jeremiah, but there's also another warning. You don't need to turn there, but you can write it down, look it up later. Isaiah 39, verse 6-8 says this, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Kind of a, a prophecy of what's going to happen with Daniel. Now this is an interesting thing. Isaiah shows up on the scene and says to Hezekiah, listen, you guys are going in the wrong direction. You've, you've decided to side with the enemy. God's going to judge your house. And everything you've accumulated is going to be taken away and, 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 and your descendants, King Hezekiah, is actually going to be taken into captivity in Babylon and that's where they're going to serve an enemy king. What was Hezekiah's response? Listen to Isaiah uh, 39, verse 8. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. Do you get that? Who cares about my kids? At least in my day, things are going to be good. I mean, you want to say, listen, Hezekiah, did you hear what you just said? Not my problem. The kids are going to have to deal with that. Now, it's an amazing thing because I think that all too often that's the same spirit that we can have concerning our kids. Certainly that came out of the 60s generation. You know, the free sex, free love generation led to the AIDS epidemic of the, of the 90s. I think even for us, we can become as parents lenient on our children and let them get away with more things because, oh, we let our guard down. Or, hey, hey, I had to struggle too hard. I don't want my kids to struggle. That cannot be a good thing. Because sooner or later, children will have to face the consequences of our actions, as in our text this evening. Look at verses 3 and 4 now, Daniel chapter 1. Then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So, King Nebuchadnezzar orders his right-hand man, Ashpenaz, to, to find among the captive Jews young men, prime specimens, uh, good looks and intelligence to serve in the court. Guys that, you know, that sort you know, scored a, you know, Perfect score in their ACT test, you know, or their perfect score in their SAT test, you know. There'd be, uh, you know, these are the guys that, hey, we're looking for the guys that are smart, the guys that are gifted. Bring them in, we're going to teach them the way of the Chal Chaldeans. And they would be taught 
the, the Chaldean language, the literature, really to prepare for this big change about to take place in their lives. Now, we know a great deal about what else they were taught from archaeology. Records are abundant. One source I read said that they studied six different languages. Three are used in this book. They studied, they studied astronomy, astrology, agriculture, architecture, math, natural science, supernatural science, and literature, that being one of the most powerful persuaders to change their worldview. So this body of literature constituted the greatest threat to their belief and confidence in their God. See that the Babylonians had their own uh, account of important biblical events. The Enuma Elish replaced the account of creation. The uh, Edapamin was a Babylonian, Babylonian version of the fall of man. And the Gilgamesh was, Epoch was a story of the flood. So, so they had their own stories. And, and in those stories, they honored the pagan deities and the pagan gods and glorified the pagan view of life and ethics. And so they wanted then to infiltrate the minds of these young men, you know, to undo all that they knew of the God that they served and get them to start following that Babylonian worldview. Now, I want to say that at this at the risk of possibly offending some people's convictions, I'd like to point something out here. The subject of the, of the public schools and, and, and educating our children has led to some really hot debates among Christians and even caused broken fellowship between believers. There are some that will insist that, that, that and go to such extremes, they'll, they'll even insist that it's God's will for every Christian family to homeschool their kids. And there are those who say, well, you know, if, if, if you don't homeschool your children, then you're sending them to hell. Listen, I've got nothing against homeschooling. We did both for our kids. We homeschooled some and we didn't homeschool some of the others. And, and, but I, I want us all to understand something. Daniel went to the Babylonian public school. Moses went to the Egyptian public school. Saul went to the school being instructed by the hard-hearted followers of lifeless religion. Yet none of these men were lost to the Lord. Rather, God used them mightily. See, we should not condemn one another for the path that God chooses for us to put our children on. If God be with them, they may be instructed by Egyptians or Babylonians that they'll still be able to serve God mightily. But you see, the book of Daniel is all about not caving in to peer pressure. It's a personal history of Daniel. The first six chapters, we find three different times of, of testing from, from peer pressure. First three right here we'll read about, it. first one right here we'll read about it in a moment, then the fiery furnace in chapter three, and then finally the lion's den in chapter six. But in each one of those experiences, Daniel and his friends won the victory, but, but this very first victory really was the foundation for the rest of the victories. Because these, these Jewish boys were faithful to God while they were yet teenagers, God was faithful to them as the years followed. Look at verse five. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of the time they might serve before the king. So they were to exclusively eat the Babylonian king's choice food. Now I would imagine that this society's diet, which was not governed by God's laws of clean and unclean food, probably looked much like our own, you know, some, some barbecued pork, some lobster, some shrimp, you know, all of it edible, but much of it forbidden by, by the Jew to eat. In addition, the Babylonians worshipped and sacrificed to false gods. No doubt, much of the meat that the king ate had been sacrificed to idols. 
And we know Paul later on would, would give the warning in Corinthians that they didn't, you know, if they didn't know where it came from, it's not going to hurt them. So just eat it. But if they knew it had been sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it. First Corinthians 10, 25 to 28 says. On top of all this, the Babylonians, uh, they had a tradition of drinking their wine was to pour a part of the each, each class is paying homage to their false gods. So as they would get the wine, they'd pour a little bit of it as, you know, worshiping their false gods. So to, to eat these foods or to drink the wines as the, as the Babylonians did would be to, to practice idolatry. Now, while many might say that all the wine you can drink, a big buffet and beef bells barbecue, sounds pretty good in the situation you're in, unless you were a Jew that wanted to be obedient to the Lord. So imagine these four Hebrew boys, teenagers, being snatched from their homes in Jerusalem, moved far away to Babylon. Since all of them were princes belonging to the royal family, they were probably not accustomed to this kind of treatment. No longer were they surrounded by the things of God in Jerusalem, and no longer would they have the influence of their godly parents and teachers. I mean, it kind of sounds like what happens when kids grow up in, in Christian families only to leave home and go to a, a state university. But anyway, you know, immediately their faith comes under siege. And unless they're a Daniel, they're not ready. And I think if I were a young man like Daniel, there would be a struggle in my heart. Because from a practical viewpoint, this looks like quite the opportunity to succeed. I mean, think about what he's seeing here, what they're seeing here. He walks into this huge world power. I mean, these people, the Babylonians, have now become the world superpower. It's like leaving Syria today with blown out buildings and, and carnage and coming to, I don't know, Newport Beach, California. You know, or, or, or someplace just as beautiful buildings and the landscapes just, just speak of money and and so Daniel walks in and he sees these 100 foot high gate. He sees 39 foot walls, 56 miles square. It's sided on all four with 25 huge gates on every side, 100 gates in all. I mean, this is a huge, huge facility, huge place, a huge moat. He walks over the drawbridge. He sees all the horses and all the guards. And he walks into the king's palace and, and in the king's court. And he looks at Ashwinaz saying, hey, you know, the king is looking for you guys. We want to give you the finest foods we have available here. Come with me. Now, what would you do? Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. Yeah, let's go, I mean. You know, I, I think of some Christians that get away from home on vacation, and I think it's almost as if they look for the opportunity to get into the flesh. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not home anymore. Now, let's do this. But not so with Daniel or his friends. It wasn't when in Babylon, do like the Babylonians. Again, but we see the peer pressure among these teens. What would you do? I mean, here they're faced with the crisis, one in which we must all face at one point in our lives, to stand up for our relationship with God or to cave in. The Bible tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. It tells us that we're not to be conformed to this world, but be renewed or transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here, they're trying really to, 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 you know, indoctrinate the people here, the, the guys here. You know, North Korea, they use loudspeakers to indoctrinate prisoners to change a person's political persuasion. You know, the, the original brainwasher is the devil himself. You know, he purposes to get us to, to believe lies rather than the truth of God's word. But here was this attempt to brainwash these kids by giving them all the delicacies of, of Babylon as well as he's changing their name so they would forget where they came from. Look at verse 7. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name uh, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. 
Now, the Hebrews included God in their names, but so did primitive cultures. And you can really kind of tell a lot, you know, about society by the names that they give their children. You know, in the 60s and the 70s, I remember, you know, was it Frank Zappa gave their kid's name, what, Sunshine or Moon Zappa and and, and, uh, Karma. I had a friend who their last name was Smith and they named their son Arrow. I'm just going through, what's your name? Aerosmith. Yeah, okay. There was a time when people named their, their children after biblical characters, but now, you know, it's rock musicians or movie stars or galactic beings, I don't know, Luke Skywalker, you know, I don't know. But King Nebuchadnezzar was not content to leave them with their names that represented God of their fathers. Now, it's funny, when you say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do you think? Veggie tales, right? I mean, that's what you think, you know. You think of Daniel. But how many know them by their real names? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now Daniel, his name means God is my judge. And it was changed to Belshazzar. Bel protects his life. Bel was a, a name of the Babylonian God. Hananiah, which means Jehovah is gracious, became Shadrach, the command of the moon God. Mishael means who is like God, became Meshach, who is like Aku, one of the heathen gods. And Azariah, Jehovah is my helper, became Abednego, the servant of Nego, another heathen god. And they were hoping if they changed their names, that they would help the youth forget their past, forget their god, and become more like the heathen people there who they're living with and studying with. Now you take away a person's name, you take away their roots and their identity. Now in a good way, you know, when we become a Christian, we get a new name. We're a Christian. We're, we're, we're Christ-like. We find a whole new identity in Christ. Not from a mother or father, but from Jesus. But you see, Daniel and the boys would not compromise who they were in this temptation, no matter what names they were given. Even though the Babylonians hoped that their names would help them to forget their God, uh, it wouldn't happen. And this is really the way of the world, too, that to eliminate God's name, uh, in our society. Well, let's just get rid of God and, and the name of Jesus. Although it's okay to say God, but if you say Jesus, oh man, everybody's up in a fence and oh, you know, the people are offended by Jesus' name. But yet, as they try to eliminate every trace of Jesus or what they call religion, they, they propagate their own religion. You know, why is it that Christians are, are, are always taken to court, yet the interests of humanists and Satanists and Muslims are, are protected? Makes no sense. I mean, it, it's an undefendable practice, but we must remember that there's a bias against those that the Lord knows. And it'll never be logical. It'll never make sense. It's simply the fruit of hatred of God. Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of this world, the world will love its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. He goes on, remember the word that I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Bring up the name of Jesus, and and, and they're going to persecute you. They're going to speak bad of you. Why? Because they don't know the Lord. So just like in the days of Daniel, when God was brushed aside and false gods were embraced, so too we're seeing the same thing in our society. Well, look at verse 8 now. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine in which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, now notice 
Daniel's concern. He didn't want to defile himself. Defile there means to taint or to pollute. It's really the opposite of the word purity. Daniel did not want anyone to question his loyalty to his God. He refused to do anything or act in any way that would cast any criticism on his devotion to his Lord. He couldn't help what happened to him. Couldn't stop his captivity, his place in the palace, the strange customs and the language, his new name, his new occupation. But he could control what he put in his mouth. The food he ate, the drinks he drank were his choice. And he wanted everyone to know, to not misunderstand where he stood. And as a result, Daniel received God-given favor from the chief of the eunuchs. See, Daniel was in an uncertain situation. Many of his countrymen had been brutally killed by the Babylonian attack. Many others had been taken away into slavery. He was a few who were in an, an, an enviable situation, being made comfortable, provided for, educated, along with the promise of entering into a high-ranking position. I mean, common sense would say, hey, don't make any waves, don't take a stand, just do what they say. But Daniel's relationship with the Lord was real and true. He could not and would not allow himself to be polluted by the Babylonians, whatever the cost. Again, how we need to be like Daniel. We're going to be saying that over and over again throughout the study of this book. Dare to be a Daniel. Look at verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Now, this eunuch, the guy who oversaw the eunuch, he had every reason to fear the king. I mean, this is the guy who put out Zedekiah's eyes, remember, with a hot poker? Jeremiah 39, verse 6 and 7 says, He made Zedekiah watch as they killed his sons and all the nobles of Judah. Then he gouged out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him in chains, and sent him away to exile in Babylon. And this guy wasn't a fun guy to be around. I mean, he tosses his own men to, you know, into the fiery furnace after, you know, they got saved. And, and we're going to see that, that the next chapter he threatens to make good the destruction of the chief counselors and the magicians for their failure to interpret a dream that he had. This guy was powerful. He was a scary guy. So verse 11, So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had sent over Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, ten is the number in the Bible of judgment. This is a number of a test, a, a, a measurement or, or testimony. Remember, this is the king's food. These aren't prisoners' rations that they're declining. You know, they, they wanted to eat this way uh, they, they, to avoid defiling themselves. But even though they're young, they realized that their captivity was in part due to their parents' failure to keep the law and to obey the Lord. I mean, Daniel is in one of the most powerful and simple cities in the world, but he wants to remain pure. I mean, think about this. In the most wicked of systems, he wants to remain pure. Daniel doesn't give in. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, well, the temple's in ruins, or, you know, my people are slaves. What difference does it make? Bring on the pork sandwich. No, again, he purposes in his heart not to defile himself. Now again, the changing of the names and the foods offered to them were all meant to provide a subtle indoctrination of brainwashing. But Daniel is wise. And he seeks permission from the authorities not to eat the food. No, the fact that God has asked us to do something doesn't dismiss 
our obligation to communicate with the powers that be. I mean, Daniel, he's going through the proper channels. He doesn't just agitate those in authority over him, you know, to get their cooperation. Rather, he, he navigates. He negotiates. I think sometimes we as Christians can climb up on our self-righteous high horse to, to point out what's wrong with our boss. Well, this guy, he's not acting this way. And, or the authorities. Well, you know, this guy, he says this, but he just doesn't know. And then when they respond, we're, we're quick to scream persecution, you know, when the world doesn't understand our convictions. When they simply don't understand. We expect non-Christian bosses to act like Christians, and then we're upset when they don't. <laughs> doesn't make sense. Here Daniel proposes a test, but he helps in the situation instead of saying, no, I'm not going to do this, let me talk to your boss. No, he says, hey, how about this? He says in verse 13, Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Again, we see that this is just not about Daniel's personal convictions. It's also about the Babylon's, their objectives. The king's want, well, he wants healthy, you know, civil servants. So Daniel wants to give the king what he wants as well as he wants to please God. So he says, hey, let's, let's do a 10-day trial. The Hebrews will eat off the value menu, you know, they'll get their veggies and drink uh, Evian, and, and while the other court candidates scarf off on, on Babel burgers and Babel brew. If the Hebrews turn out fitter and fuller, then who's to complain? Everyone's happy. Daniel has a clear conscience, Nebuchadnezzar is, is, has the healthy helpers, and God gets glorified through faith. Let me give us a more modern day example of this. The sales manager wants you to lie about the product. He thinks that it's going to boost sales. What he wants is income, whereas what God wants is honesty. Well, let's propose a test. If the other guy does it the boss's way while you do it God's way, in 10 days, let's see who sold the most cars. The point is, don't just mandate. Navigate and trust God. Put the pressure on Him. If He wants you in that job, He'll work it out. Give God the opportunity to work in your life. So verse 14, so we consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, vegetarians are probably cheering at this point. Yeah, right on. Yet there's no biological reason a vegetarian diet would make a noticeable difference in just 10 days. I mean, surely they prospered and even better than those following the king's diet and they were allowed to continue sparing themselves from defilement. But the plan worked. It's clearly this was God's blessing upon their lives. God's blessing that, that won the victory. We're told in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, that the Lord God of Israel says, those who honor me, I will honor. And that was certainly the case with, with Daniel and his friends. Verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God, as a result, gave them certain gifts that they would need living there in Babylon. Listen, when we see someone possess a talent, we often attribute it to all just their natural ability. Yet God says that, that it's He who has given those abilities. He gives artists, craftsmen, musicians, athletes, and scholars their talents. In fact, indeed, James 1.5 says give, God gives 
to all men generously and without reproach. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of life with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, unfortunately, most don't glorify the Lord with the God-given gifts and talents that they have. Instead, they turned to their pride and they look at all themselves and what they did and what they accomplished, but they've still been given into it by God. I think of the, the 70s group Queen. I mean, Freddie Mercury, phenomenal voice. Died of AIDS. You know, you didn't give the credit to God. We, we need to give thanks for God for the gifts He's given us and use those gifts to serve Him. Again, verse 17, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. See, God would give them the gifts to navigate through this time in, in, in Babylon. In the same way, God has given us as His church spiritual gifts to navigate during our time until the Lord calls us home. Now, verse 18. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the, before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in the, all his realm, Thus Daniel continued in the first, until the first year of King Cyrus. Because of their God-given abilities and gifts, they were appointed to personally serve the king in matters of counsel. And this is important for us to see as well. I think many of us can, can, can tend to resent the successful. But success in the world is not evil. I mean, God has brought these men into these positions for his purposes. And he places people in, in, in higher positions for a reason. We see here, in spite of the, the pressures on Daniel and his friends, they did not compromise. Why is that? Well, partly, I believe, because of the, the biblical grounding. Daniel knew the scriptures, forbid him to eat certain meats and prepare them in certain ways. Daniel, he knew the scriptures. There's an abundance of proof to support that claim. I believe that Daniel also spent his time in daily reading the Bible, meditating on the truth of God's word. And just really, it's just a reminder to all of us the importance of, of reading our Bibles and staying in God's Word. Some people say, well, you know, well, I've been reading my Bible, I'm not getting much out of it. What usually it means is, well, you know, it's not producing the kind of feeling I want in my life. It's not giving me what I want. That's why I'm not getting anything out of it. Listen, don't worry about the feeling. Worry about your heart. Hide God's Word in your heart. John Phillips says this, you are storing in your heart the materials from which you construct convictions that will enable you to make the right decisions at the right time. From that inner reservoir of God's word, the principles will emerge to give you spiritual, scriptural guidance when decision times come. I like that. When, when everyone else was eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine, Daniel said no. Why? Because he knew it wasn't right. Daniel had the courage to say no. As we close, it's interesting, in Daniel 1.8, Daniel stood alone, but in verse 10, others were with him. You know what that tells me? Our decisions are influential. What I decide to do will sometimes cause others to decide with me to do the same thing. Jerry Vines tells of his first night at Mercy University where a bunch of kids got together. They went for a drive and someone offered him a beer. He said, uh, Vines started to walk back to school. Where are you going, Vines? 
I'm walking back to school. I've come here to study to preach the gospel, and I'm not starting my college education by taking my first drink of beer. They said, all right, Vines, get in the car. If you won't drink, we won't drink. I like that. When one kid decided not to do it, the rest followed suit. So as we continue in our study in the book of Daniel, we'll see more and more of the temptation to compromise, but more and more of the victory that comes from standing our ground and daring to be like Daniel. Let's pray.